Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast. My name is Paul Ellis, and I'm your host for these programs about developments in this fast-growing industry. A new regime in financial policy and market behavior is unfolding, and the patterns of the past decade are facing a period of adjustment. Schroeder's Asset Management believes the new regime will be driven by several themes, including decarbonization, deglobalization, and demographic change. In today's episode three of this Schroeder's and the Sustainable Finance podcast series, we're going to zero in on the impact deglobalization and demographic change are having on sustainability-focused investment strategies. Our guests from Schroeder's include Angus Bauer, Head of Sustainable Investment Research, and Lazaro Tiant, Sustainable Investment Analyst. We will begin today's episode by identifying Schroeder's sustainability considerations related to deglobalization and demographic change. Hello, Angus and Laz, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast. Hi, Paul. Thanks very much. Yeah, glad you could join us today for this number three in the series with Schroeder's. And Angus, we're going to start by having you explain to our followers what we mean by deglobalization and demographic change, if you will. Yeah, um, thanks very much indeed, Paul. So if we just if we nudge on to the first slide here, I, I, I'll give a brief overview from a demographic perspective, and then I'll, I'll let Laz set the scene in deglobalization terms. But just briefly backpedaling once before that to explain why I want to divide it like that. We Laz and I sit in a, a sustainability research team where we have a thematic alignment. What that means is that we we cover very top-down, powerful themes and the trends that sit beneath them um, all through a sustainability lens. Now, I look at human capital management in simple terms. That's the way people, uh, way, the way companies manage their people to get the most out of their people and in order to be able to you know, generate the, the most possible value both for and from their people. And LAS covers human rights, which is really the sort of external human capital management, the way companies interact with communities and society and so on. So when we when we think about demographics, really, this is a very important human capital management trend. This is an incredibly important societal trend, full stop. But from the sustainability perspective, we care very much about demographic shifts because the composition of workforce is changing. Um, age dependency ratios are changing as well. So actually, uh, the chart here on the on the left hand side of the, the slide really highlights that dependency ratio. Now, the higher the number, simplistically, the more people there are in an economy who are supported by a single working age individual. So the higher the ratio, the fewer the workers relative to retirees. Um, and that really means that, you know, it becomes harder to find workers. It becomes harder to find workers who are producing for the economy. And that then means that if you have a tight labor market, you really need to find companies that are going to be better at attracting, retaining their talent and then generating value from the people that they employ. Um, right hand side is really a chart that's not going to surprise anybody, but very much in a macro context shows the evolution of um, global population growth. And, and really what we're seeing is um, predictions for global population growth to, 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 to actually move into decline in, in late this decade, 2028, 2029. Um, and that, and that, you know, 
from a very simplistic perspective, has an incredibly profound effect on global economic growth as well as inflation. You know, labor scarcity means that companies, again, are going to be facing significant skills gaps. And when we think about the, the organizations in our economies today, particularly developed market economies, we're looking for companies that are going to be able to generate persistent growth in value through the cycle. And that persistent value creation is reliant on having a persistence in the value producing assets and where we have knowledge based companies, companies that really are reliant on people to create their productivity and their productive growth. If those companies face a labor scarcity, they are going to need to invest, they are going to need to work harder to bring people into the organization, or they're going to have to invest in things like um, you know, artificial intelligence or generative AI, for example, to try and pr plug that productivity shortfall because the skills gaps that we are facing in developed economies, but very much actually across the world, are becoming so significant that by you know by the 2050s for example we could be seeing very very sizable shortfalls in global gdp as a result of these skills gaps that have manifested because of demographic change um now i said i was going to pass over to laz to, to walk through deglobalization um if we could move to the next slide laz i'll hand over to you thanks angus so um, when we're thinking about deglobalization in, in the context of how we're thinking about companies that we're invested in way to think about it is companies are looking for ways to bring operations closer to home if possible right and that's the direct operations perhaps manufacturing that goes on within a company but maybe also where they're pulling components of what they might need to manufacture products and services that are otherwise maybe outsourced from other countries so what we're seeing on the chart on the left that's really il illustrating certain data points from earnings calls that essentially give us the number of times public companies are mentioning reshoring or onshoring when announcing their their earnings and as angus had, a, had mentioned in the course of reshoring and onshoring what we expect are new costs to enter supply chains which then can cause inflationary pressures for the companies um the, the chart on the right this is showing uh, announcements of reshoring jobs which we're going to expect and see grow due to federal and state incentives and so what this will do is uh, ensure supply chain resiliency and and help mitigate geopolitical risks in the context of what we're seeing in the United States, such as the Inflation Reduction Act, that's a big area, such as in an energy transition, where we're seeing a lot of that incentive um, from those um, areas of um, regulation actually have companies thinking about bringing those jobs back home. Not only that, from an education and reskilling standpoint, which we'll talk about from a demographic standpoint later, also incentivizes companies to think um, about local homegrown talent. Another thing to think about is what we've seen during not only COVID, but also ongoing through the Ukraine-Russian war, global supply chains are certainly broken down and, and being in, impaired quite a bit. And so that need for something like energy independence is at the top of the agenda for not just the U.S., but for many other countries. And as we are thinking about some of these trends, such as the energy transition, when we're thinking about um, manufacturing as well as limiting supply chains of those key components, what we're seeing also is trade regulation be put into place, which is what some, something we'll talk about later on. But essentially, when there are things such as if you think about solar panels or the electric vehicle industry, components to battery technology or that solar technology that's coming from abroad, such as areas in China, um, 
there's going to be more regulation put on that to ensure that things such as forced labor are is not part of the supply chain. And so that's what we're thinking about from a human rights standpoint as we think about deglobalization, right? And, and, and understanding how we can mitigate risk for companies um, such that there is no disruption to their productivity within that supply chain. So the backdrop to this discussion put an emphasis on changes in the labor markets. Focusing on employees as a stakeholder, can you provide insights on human capital management in the context of these global themes? And Angus, why don't you start as well on this slide? Yeah, super. Thank you, Paul. Um, now, this is my this is my favorite topic to talk about in the world, human capital management. So I apologize in advance if I if I waffle. Please do stop me and 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 butt in. Now, um, Millennials, I, I, I don't want to make this all about um, one particular generation, but millennials have had a pretty rough time of it. And I say that as a millennial person myself, um, but I think objectively it would be difficult for anybody to deny this point. Um, you know, a lot of millennials were entering the workforce around the global financial crisis. Um, that made it very difficult indeed um, to pick up gainful employment. Um, so then we had, uh, for those millennials who did get into the workforce, um, the euro crisis uh, that had ripple effects across the globe that, 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 that took place in the early sort of 2012, 2013, 14 timeframe. Um, obviously, we then had the pandemic um, that led to significant um, redundancies and vast swathes of the population, um, working age population, again, being being rendered unemployed. Um, and yet millennials continue to persevere. And, you know, it's a really important point, actually, the 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 the, the, the sort of the cyclical backdrop that has um, significantly affected the working conditions for millennials has not got in the way of, um, you know, near record employment nowadays in various uh, different countries and economies, um, but also, you know, gently improving levels of productivity. Um, but that's not enough. You know, th there are there are some relatively structural and profound issues that are going on uh, beneath the surface with with this generation in particular that, that are where it makes it very interesting to assess companies and think about these topics through a sustainability lens and they start with the reality that you know millennials want more from their work today than your average worker did back in the 70s or 80s um there was actually a a, a wonderful um interview with a man called bill o'brien who was the ceo of of hanover uh, reinsurance in the early 90s who basically identified maslow's hierarchy of needs as being you know something that previously business just had not got right companies employed people so they gave them uh, you know, funding for shelter and food and so on, but companies didn't engage people. They didn't give people enough to satisfy the self-esteem, the love needs, the self-actualization, the sort of upper parts of the Maslow pyramid. Um, and actually, you know, as the generational shifts have evolved, as millennials have become a greater portion of the workforce, so has the importance of purpose within an organization. So has the importance of creating that sense of engagement such that people really feel like what they're going to do and where they're going to do their work is something that engages them on a personal sense, on a values-based sense. That's when people bring their truest form of self 
to work. That's where people are most productive. That's where we see that companies that really are better at harnessing um, the values, the attitudes, the 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 people uh, holistically that they employ. Those are the companies that create competitive advantage. Those are the companies that really generate sustainable and scalable competitive advantage. So, you know, the starting point here, back to your question of, you know, what is the backdrop here that, that puts an emphasis on changes in the labor market? Well, you know, we have fairly significant, unarguable demographic changes that mean that the composition of the workforce today and the composition of the workforce that will remain now over the next two decades really is a is a is a a worker, if I can characterize he 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 or she as such, is a worker who is looking for a sense of purpose, who is looking to be engaged such that their values are shared with the organization that employs them. And quite possibly, they're looking for a different kind of work, whether it's flexible work, whether it's um, work that involves multiple employers over the course of one's career, rather than, for example, you know, starting work out of university and remaining with the same employer for your entire life. So, you know, there are shifts in the in the employee base. And what that means is that companies need to change their attitudes, change the way they manage those employees in order to harness them and get the most out of them that they possibly can. Now, that's where we think that the importance of human capital management really comes to the fore. So if we please move on to the next slide, um, I'll just explain what we mean in a bit more depth um, by human capital management. So for starters, human capital really is the it's the capabilities of an organization's people. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a, it sounds like a, a complicated term, but it's really very simple in terms of what it actually means. It's, 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 it's how it's the skills, the knowledge, the experience, the ability of the people employed by an organization to create value. What that means therefore is that human capital management is effectively the capability of an organization to harness those skills as effectively as possible. Now, we do not believe that human capital is normative. I mean, every company has an idiosyncratic culture. Every individual person has a slightly different set of values. You know, I care about certain stuff that, Paul, I'm sure you don't necessarily care about, and certainly that Laz doesn't necessarily care about, but then we have some values that are shared. Laz and I, for example, were talking about his gardening habit last week. He has the most incredible array of tomato plants in his backyard which i'm very jealous of because mine singularly failed this year so we have shared values and sometimes we have differing values the point here is that culture is completely idiosyncratic to the organization every company has a different culture every company has different people so a company's human capital is always going to be different to the next organization so it is not normative However, the way companies can manage that human capital to create value is more normative, i.e. there are some things that companies can do that is good and that will help them get more out of people, that will help them engage people, that will help promote well-being and so on within their employees. And there are some things that companies can do that will generate the opposite um, outcomes. And so what we have here on the slide, really the the the, the core systems in inverted commas that we believe 
can be managed by organizations to get the best out of their human capital, whether or not they have a whole bunch of people like Angus and Laz who love tomato plants and gardening, or whether they have a whole load of people like my wife, who quite frankly isn't that interested in my gardening habit and just, you know, quite likes just the food being on the table and and, and doesn't want to spend too much time thinking about it. Um, and so when we think about these, these, these human capital management systems, the things in green bars on the slide and summarized in a bit more detail on the left-hand side, you know, it really starts with a company's operating model and its workforce strategy, i.e. what is the company seeking to do and how is it managing its people in order to deliver this? And this sounds really simple, but it's amazing how few companies actually take the time to think through strategic workforce planning. So, you know, Paul, I'm sure you've come across a whole bunch of companies and, and investors and CEOs over the time who say, you know, we're going to double our profit over the next five years, or we're going to grow our market share in the European or US market by 10 percentage points or something like that. And, and that's great. Every company has a target. Every company then has a strategy to deliver that target. But very few organizations, when they say our goal is X, then say, OK, we need to think about our people because the people are the engine room of the organization that are going to help deliver that goal. So when a company does good workforce planning, when it has a good workforce strategy, it says our goal is here. And what we therefore need to think about is who are the people that are in the roles that are going to deliver the milestones that enable us to hit that goal? And what skills do those people have? And, and who are the successors to those people? And what skills do they have? And where do we have skills gaps? Where do we have succession gaps? How do we plug those gaps? How do we make sure either organically, either uh, i.e. from within or inorganically through hiring, we ensure that we have the capability and the people to deliver that strategy? Because ultimately, if we, are, if we are a business that has a goal of raising market share in North America, and we haven't thought about the people and the skills that are required to deliver that, our, our strategy and our ambition is a bit hollow. And so starting point is workforce strategy. Next thing is then culture, culture and inclusion. Now, culture has millions of definitions. I've already told you that culture is 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 never normative. But the way we're thinking about how organizations can manage culture is by looking at culture as being the invisible hand that guides the behavior and decision-making of employees. So it's that little voice in the back of people's head when they're at work that shapes the way they do things, shapes their behavior, their attitudes, and so on, in a way that the organization itself would desire it to be. We then have incentive and performance management. Simplistically, that's carrot in front of the donkey, stick behind the donkey. You know, how you are paying, how you are incentivizing people, how you are bringing people inside the tent to work together with you. Then we have talent and learning systems now these are absolutely critical you know how companies train people um again we're starting to see that there are very clear trends in markets where companies are disclosing things like training hours hey we we, we had a situation last year where 100 percent of our workforce attended 10 days worth of training over the course of the year well you know that sounds great fantastic lovely lovely stuff it's a nice stat but what does it mean? What it means to me as a, as a human capital analyst in the sustainable investment team is almost nothing until we can understand, well, actually, how are you managing that training? How are you measuring whether or not that training is effective? Quite simply, if you take the entire workforce out of the game for two weeks in the year and that training doesn't help them do their jobs better or it doesn't help them 
uh, with their sense of fulfillment or their well-being and so on, then, you know, not only are you wasting uh, the cost associated with that training, but you're creating an opportunity cost where for two weeks of the year, those people aren't doing what you're paying them to do and what your value creating model suggests. So, you know, in the context of understanding how companies are driving talent and learning systems to create more value, we're looking for companies to manage their training programs, identify the skills they need, work out which people they want to put into these development programs and so on and so forth. Now, again, as demographic changes ripple through the corporate um, employment base, we're starting to see that different things resonate with different people. We're starting to see back to that millennial generation, a whole bunch of people that are going to be elevated into the C-suite over the next two decades. And we need, therefore, to see that companies are managing the, the, the capabilities of that those people through their talent and learning systems, and then also through their innovation systems. Now, the final uh, slide that I'd just like to touch on briefly, if we move one forward, please, is um, really, it says here, the paths to materiality. But what it's intended to show is you know, just how relevant this can be to the financial returns of an organization. And as investors, particularly as sustainable investors, what we care about at the end of the day are the returns profiles of an organization um, and uh, returns to um, both investor stakeholders, but in my context as a human capital specialist, the returns to worker stakeholders as well. Now, simplistically, what we have in the middle of the slide here in, in the sort of turquoise boxes are the, are the components of return on capital employed calculation, revenue, costs, uh, assets and equity. And what we're trying to think about in our research every single day is, okay, well, if a company does a better job of managing its training systems, its talent and learning systems, where do we expect to see that in its P&L and in its balance sheet? Assets up, profit margins up, profit margins being driven by higher revenue, higher revenue being driven by higher pricing per unit, higher pricing per unit being driven by better innovation, by higher product quality, which allows the company to go to its customers and say, hey, you get more bang for your buck with this product. It's a better product because it does this, this, and this for you that the previous ones didn't do. It's going to last you longer, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, what we're looking for in as summarized in this slide is companies that can really manage those human systems whether it's culture, whether it's incentives or talent and learning systems or workforce strategy, companies that can manage those human systems to generate the maximum possible value, both for investors in dollars and cents terms and for the employees by way of being able to pay those employees more over time, but also by way of being able to create more fulfilling work for those people. Um, so hopefully, Paul, I didn't talk for too long. I apologize if I did, but that should hopefully give you a good sense of the backdrop here. Well, thanks very much, uh, Angus. Uh, we've gotten uh, a lot of detail from your presentation about the employees. Uh, but Laz, let's move on to the other relevant people stakeholders. What about some of the considerations for customers and communities in the context of demographic shifts and deglobalization? Thanks, Bob. As you mentioned, it, the other people stakeholders that we're thinking about outside of the workers in the human, human capital management context are the workers from a labor force perspective and the human rights issues that revolve around them, but then also the customers uh, through which the products and services are intended to be given to, as well as the communities through which these companies are, are operating in. And so as you see here on the slide, there are going to be impacts throughout that entire value chain 
from the, again, the worker and community perspective, it's almost intrinsically linked, right? When we're thinking about not only the workers within the company's direct operations, but those within the supply chain, as I had mentioned previously. Um, and, and we're thinking about deglobalization and demographics in that context. We already touched on the importance and understanding things such as not only trade regulation that's being put into place by the local or global regulators, but then also where there are norms and conventions that have been put into place such that we understand what are the guidelines in place for us to consider as investors um, to avoid any um, unanticipated risks for, for companies. When we're thinking about products and services, which I think is a lens of human rights that has a, a light to be shown on, when we're thinking about, let's say, what's a fundamental um, product or service to society. Things like healthcare should come to mind. Things like digital inclusion should come to mind. When we mention digital rights here on this slide, it, it is from the perspective of thinking of privacy and security as we see more data breaches have um, unintended consequences on personal information towards society. But when we're thinking about digital inclusion, it's really about understanding access and having a license to really participate in the economy as we do see links with people having access to GDP growth. And so when we're thinking about this value chain um, from a human rights context, it's really trying to unpick what's happening not only with the people within the company, but those outside within the, um, the, the ecosystem for a company. If you go to the next slide, Paul, please. This gives a bit more of context in terms of understanding the many different industries that we might highlight that um, are all experiencing changes that are exemplifying deglobalization and demographic shifts within that human rights context. So going back to the point that I was just mentioning on um, considering digital rights and inclusion, this is a, a sub-theme within our human rights frameworks that we think about. And so in the, in the context of demographic shifts, the digital divide is essentially referring to that unequal distribution of, of access to digital technologies, including mobile broadband, uh, including the internet, and essentially highlighting that there's a gap uh, between those that are affording some of this access, which comes with skills and support to really effectively engage online and have what it's offering, and, and those who did not. Um, and so when we think about digital access, it, it's really, focusing on that growth of communication technologies that have grown over time. So when we think about ethical products and services, the telecommunications industry has really been the, the one that has been allowing for significant contributions to those structural and economic developments. But you know, if we're seeing a lack of um, access to internet and, and mobile broadband, we're not going to see access to some of the software and the related services that those feed um, capabilities to, right? And so this is really generally raising the stakes for an entire community or an uh, individual to participate, right, in, in that growth of the economy. And so when we're thinking about advancements such as AI, which we'll get to, there's going to be a lot of people that don't have this basic bit of um, connectivity to the world. And so as we advance from a technological standpoint, they're not able to keep up. And so when we think about that global um, population that has access to the internet, there's going to be billions that remain without it in, in both developed and emerging markets. And as technology is going to evolve, this digital divide is really representing unequal participation for those with low incomes um, in those type of households, people who are disabled, people in rural areas and, and older adults. Um, as we think about deglobalization, we already spoke about how there's you know, forced labor regulation that's been um, adopted to think about key components within the global energy transition. 
But when we're thinking about other tricky suppliers, um, we're seeing this grow in materiality in um, food and, and water services, as well as the apparel industry, where we're seeing that need to have a, a, a lens on a just transition really be at, at a top agenda point for certain investors that are focusing on those type of industries. Um, and so that might be a good point to, to pass it on to Angus for the following question. Okay, so Angus says you consider the value chain risks and the opportunities for companies. What are relevant examples of employee, customer, and community impacts that can be material? Mm, it's a, it's a, there are a lot of different examples we could have chosen to speak about here, but the 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 slide we've just got up on the screen is something that I'm really excited to talk about because this is a piece of research that uh, myself and a colleague in the research team uh, Schroeders have been doing with the Global Labour Institute, which is a, a, a an organisation within Cornell University over in the States. Um, and we've been looking at the fashion industry because the fashion industry is 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 not only an enormous um employer of people globally employing you know several hundred million people across the value chain uh, across the world but it's also um you know a human capital intensive business um i.e it employs uh, a lot of people relative to the revenues and profits that it creates um and it is a significant contributor to um you know the big the big sort of climate change uh, challenges whether it's water usage or carbon uh, dioxide emissions and so on and so forth so um the fashion industry is a really interesting one to to assess in this context of the sort of value chain risks and opportunities and and actually what we did in in this research with with our, our collaborators at Cornell was ask the question well you know the fashion industry outsourced the production of its clothing its products its garments decades ago and um the vast majority of clothing is made now in a, a small handful of production centers in southeast asia uh production centers that are incredibly hot and that are prone to an awful lot of flooding uh and these extreme climate events are becoming more frequent over time you'd only have looked at a newspaper or read a web news website over the last sort of four six weeks and you would have seen tons and tons of coverage over uh, of, of extreme heat um really across the world um so we, we sort of asked the question you know well with everything that's going on here what are the what are, what are what is the risk in the fashion value chain what is the financial value at risk in the fashion value chain from these 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 uh physical effects of climate change acute heat flooding risk and so on um and what is the industry doing about it um and so what we did was we we we, we sort of we, we partnered up with with the guys at Cornell. We partnered up with a, a bunch of universities and experts based out in different countries in Southeast Asia. And we, we went out to try and identify what's going on. And um, using a variety of, of publicly available climate models that predict uh, rainfall, flood levels, that predict um, changing heat levels over the next uh, 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 years, we ran different scenarios to, to, to analyze you know, what proportion of a company's supply chain has factories that are going to be experiencing more than 32 degrees Celsius heat on a given day? And what proportion of a company's supply chain has factories that, gonna, that are going to be 50 centimeters underwater because of flooding and so on? And, and you know, we found, Paul, some pretty 
scary stuff in some sense that in certain major production hubs for the garment industry, Karachi, for example, in Pakistan, you have even as early as 2030, you have almost 200 days per year. This is the table on the right hand side where the temperature is more than 30.5 degrees wet bulb. That means that wet bulb there is, is, is reading in humidity as well. So if you're looking at you know, two thirds of the year almost where you've got more than 30 degrees Celsius temperatures, the productivity effect that that has on the workers in the supply chains is really quite significant. If you then, you know, look at higher temperatures and if you look at flood related risks and so on, and then we work through the numbers in terms of, okay, well, what is this costing? What are the headwinds associated with these extreme weather events costing the industry? Number one, they're costing quite significant amounts of money, certainly in terms of the profit and value pool within the industry as a whole. Um, but inevitably, more often than not, these costs are being borne by the people right at the bottom of the ladder in that value chain. It is the workers who work in the factories in the supply chain. And that's something that we want to understand so we can then engage with organizations and engage with the right actors in these uh, industries to try and drive um, behaviors that are uh, improved that create better outcomes for those worker stakeholders. Um, as it pertains to deglobalization specifically, this is one where I get to talk about deglobalization rather than LAS, um, We've also been trying to work out by talking to the buyers within these branded companies, um, you know, what their response is likely to be when they when they see just how much of a headwind is being caused by some of these extreme weather events. Um, and what we have heard increasingly is that many of them are drawing up contingency plans to reshore some of their production, i.e. move their production relationships away from countries like Vietnam or Cambodia or Pakistan and move them closer to home, either to, to, to Europe or, or North America. And, you know, reshoring as a trend that Laz has already mentioned is, is, is very much an undeniable um, phenomenon that is start, starting to, to, to take place. But in the fashion industry, where the workers that have previously been employed for very, very small total sums of money in these in these countries where they have been reliant on these sorts of jobs in, in, in some of these um, producing countries like Vietnam and Cambodia and so on, where the fashion industry then seeks to take production out of those centers and move it back on shore, we need to be very careful that that we don't leave workers behind. You know, there's this concept in, in the climate world of just transitions, i.e. energy transitions must not leave anybody behind. Well, in our world here, looking at looking at the impacts to workers in, in, in the fashion industry um, as a result of climate change, actually there are transitions really in terms of business model transitions that need to make sure that they don't leave anybody behind. Because if you have, you know, 100 million plus workers employed in the supply chain of the garment industry, all who get, you know, left out as the industry pulls out of Southeast Asia and moves elsewhere, that creates significant problems for those local economies. So, you know, there are impacts to workers as a result of both deglobalization and demographics across the world. But, but in this example, um, you know, it really is quite striking because, the extreme weather events are becoming more frequent. The costs of these are really starting to bite. And we're witnessing companies in their contingency planning work out how they can, you know, not 
this isn't the only option, but how they can, across a range of options, mitigate these effects. And one of those uh, potential uh, outcomes is that they pull production out of Southeast Asia, and, and therefore we need them to be very conscious of, of, of what happens thereafter to the workers that are left behind. Um, Laz, I, I, I think I'll pause there and, and, and see if you have anything you want to add. Sure. If we go on to the to the next slide, um, giving the example of uh, demographic shifts, you know, I had spoke before about digital connectivity and inclusion and the quality of that today can provide signal to GDP growth and economic growth in the future, given strong quality. Education is quite similar, right? When we think about the quality of education today, um, having benefits for the future, but there's an interesting situation right now with how the world is evolving from a uh, technological standpoint, as well as a need for products and services and skills in a growing energy transition. And that's that we need jobs today. We need reskilled workers today, as well as a pipeline for those that are going to be able to continue operating the engine um, in the future. So as we think about the role of education and, and reskilling, that's going to be quite essential to, to some sub-themes like the climate change areas, as well as just general sustainable technology innovation. And there are going to be social implications within those themes that investors really should be thinking about as important for generally just generating value and both addressing both opportunities with um, communities and, and an education system today, but then also the human rights risks that do come with it from the just transition point that, that Angus was just bringing up. And a couple of examples that we're talking about here, one on the energy transition, you see that from a demographic standpoint, 6% of the employment growth seen between now and 2030 requires at least two years of post-secondary and education. And so reskilling on the job, it's not just going to be just formal training as we do see, but also training that has also somewhat died out um, in, in regards to what you see in the US, for example, the trade skills and, and, and vocational skills on a lot of these different areas of need, such as welding, for example, is somewhere that over the past two decades has lost a lot of its muster in, in really being able to build those kind of blue collar jobs. And we're seeing a need for those areas to need to be rebuilt. And so I think there's something to be said about engagement that should happen um with the local universities and the local tech vocational type of programs the same can be said about um, other areas of technology innovation such as ai but then also what we're seeing with the need for semiconductors um speaking of u.s regulation as i mentioned earlier in the ira you have the u.s chip act which is really focusing on giving um close to $53 billion, uh, making it available for research and development. And so this is really intended for manufacturing and, and workforce development throughout the United States. And so in this area alone, it's, it's estimated that over 236,000 net new workers will be required to help double that US share of global semis production. And semiconductor production is gonna be very essential for all of the aspirations that not only the US, but globally co companies have in terms of being able to build out electric vehicle suite of fleets, for example, but then other areas of technological needs um, within the tech and, and hardware sectors. And so when we're thinking about the need to reskill workers, that's going to be essential, not only now, but understanding that there's going to be a pipeline of talent that needs to be built to ensure that we meet these goals that in, in some cases stretch to 2050, depending on the requirements for the sector. So, Angus and then Laz, AI has increased in attention for companies and the broader society. 
Where does AI come into play as it relates to deglobalization and demographic shifts? And what are some of the implications from a human capital and human rights perspective? Thanks, Paul. I'll start this one and then and then I'll hand over to Laz. So as I, as I said at the beginning in my sort of intro, um, you know, demographic shifts are, are um, unarguable. And one of the co consequences of demographic uh, change is that uh, we are facing profound skills and labor shortages. Um, what that means is that companies need to invest in automation and generative AI, i.e., you know, chat GPT and other large language models, um, but other types of AI really are the next step in the automation um, sort of development curve and really offer company, uh, companies a, a, an interesting opportunity to, to circumvent the labor shortages that they are otherwise facing. So from a human capital management perspective, this matters enormously because, you know, people, workers, particularly in the services or knowledge-based industries, are going to have to start working, you know, with um, artificial intelligence. You know, desk workers um, spend approximately three hours per day on, on, on desk-based sort of computer tasks, writing emails and so on, booking meetings. There are AI uh, tools that can be used to augment productivity there. So from a human capital management perspective, we care about seeing how companies can harness AI and bring it into the fold within their management of people to maximize uh, the value-creating potential of the individual organization. From a macro perspective, um, you know, the world has been automating for 200 years. For 200 years, there have been concerns that robots will eat jobs and destroy jobs and so on. But what we have seen thus far is that there are um, there is frictional pain. There is dislocation um, in certain um, jobs where certain tasks within a job become automated. But overall, as the world has become more automated, we have seen net job creation. We believe that that is likely to continue with the advancement of AI, notwithstanding the reality that the world is already short labor. Uh, and so we're really quite excited about what uh, AI can do, um, but we care very, very strongly um, about how companies integrate AI into, into the workforce. There are loads and loads of forecasts out there that talk about um, you know, how additive to economic growth uh, the integration of generative AI could be in the knowledge-based economy. The, the importance here is that the knowledge-based economy in developed markets like the USA uh, employs uh, overwhelming numbers of people, the vast majority of the people. Um, but what we're really struck by and most excited by is is the augmentation in desk-based work, the, the the reality that I can write emails uh, with the help of uh, generative AI and large language models. I can summarize meeting notes with the help of large language models uh, and so on. You know, this is where companies can really start to make significant uh, productivity gains, um, such as, for example, uh, what, such as the, the, the statistics that you see on the bottom left of this slide here, saving in certain studies people were saving 40 percent of their capacity in other studies um people were uh, able really to get up the curve quite quickly in terms of uh, their understanding of, of of things with the help of uh, generative ai but as we see on the next slide this can't happen without good human capital management 
because this can't happen without reskilling. This cannot happen without retraining, without supporting people as they build new skill sets. I've talked about the importance of talent and learning. Laz has talked about the importance of reskilling. Um, you know, we think there is a huge amount of potential with the integration of AI, certainly to plug skills gaps and labor shortages. But we actually believe there is a whole lot more upside if companies can augment their productivity, but that requires reskilling and retraining. And so we are already seeing a huge amount of spending uh, in HR tech go into this kind of thing. We're seeing some really interesting case studies where companies are harnessing AI and automation effectively when it comes to their human capital management strategies, their HR strategies, and so on. Uh, and Laz, um, I'll leave you just to sum up some of the exciting uh, opportunities um, in the human rights landscape from an AI perspective. Thanks, Angus. So, so as we think about AI in the human rights context, some of the themes that we've been focusing on include access and connectivity, which we've spoken about already, education, which comes up again, not only from the perspective of, of reskilling, but again, thinking about the quality of education, feeding the needs for, for the jobs of tomorrow, and then health and wellness. And then as we think about the different stakeholder implications within these different themes, Ethics and bias is something we've touched on already, right, from the access and connectivity standpoint. We're speaking about AI and the promise for this advancement. However, there are many that do not even have basic access to the internet and broadband. So how do we think about those implications? But then we also, within the same context, think about policy implications, right, or policy intervention. And what we're seeing now with the U.S., at least from the Jobs and Infrastructure Act, is a lot more funding moving towards the need to close that digital divide, right? So we're seeing the need for um, that intervention to come to play to not only provide the incentives um, for local communities to tap in those tax um, structures, but then also for companies to help close that gap. When we think about education and, and health and wellness, there are a more of a product and services lens that we might be able to bring to the conversation. So moving to the next slide, when we think about education in the context of AI, essentially one thing to think about is teachers, right? I think a lot of people immediately think to how do we develop technology for students, but I think it's the teachers that we need to really loosen up their time to be redirected towards areas that have more interaction with students. So there was a study that was done um, by McKinsey that showed that in that survey of different countries and, and the teachers within them, teachers are focusing 50 hours of, the, of their work um, towards a number of different tasks from preparation to administrative tasks to, to student instruction and engagement. And essentially what the study found is that a significant portion of their time can actually be moved towards activities that have a more connotation with working with the student in, in a tangible way. So student coaching and advisement as well as student behavioral and skill development are areas that AI can't necessarily help with. It's, it's the other areas such as administration and evaluation and feedback that can loosen up a few hours of their time. At the same time, when we think about this trend of deglobalization and some of the more forward-looking perspectives we might be able to take into account, we're looking at the quality of education in certain countries today, including the U.S., in terms of understanding where has there been curricula developed, essentially, that helps understand what the pipeline of talent and skills are for the use of AI in the future. And what we're seeing is about half of the states in the U.S. have some kind of curricula at the high school level that focuses on computer science courses. However, when we compare that to other countries, such as China, India, Qatar, Portugal, there's curricula on artificial intelligence starting from primary school all the way through high school. So as we think about certain um, skill intensive sectors, it also 
have a lot to do with outsourcing economies, such as the IT industry, we're starting to think about what are the implications of AI on, on education today with the viability of those countries being able to, one, protect their status as, as in terms of being high areas of, of skills for outsourced services, or will they be able to, um, let's say in areas such as the US that might be behind today on education, be able to leapfrog in, in areas where they need skills to outsource services and, and reshore those skills back to the US. Health and wellness is an area where there are a lot of implications for artificial intelligence, both from a bias perspective, as well as a technological advancement perspective. So when we think about the ethics and bias within healthcare, it's really understanding um, decision-making, right? And where there's bias that comes about in decision-making today in an ordinary process, because people are quick to make decisions. Um, and there is a process essentially within artificial intelligence that we want to consider that removes any bias from the data that is being collected. Data is a big aspect of, of knowledge base within the healthcare industry. And as data is going to be part of algorithmic training, we need to ensure that that data is not biased. Therefore, decision-making would not be unbiased and have adverse effects to those customers, right? The patients that, that should be benefiting from quality um, of health services. And moving to the next slide, Paul, just, just to wrap this up, when we think about how this is going to be regulated and how this grows over time, right? When you think about global norms, such as the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, they have put into place governmental sta intergovernmental standards on AI, right? And what this does is lay out both values-based principles as well as recommendation for policymakers. So when we think about those value-based principles, it's about transparency and explainability, accountability, robustness and security and safety. And when we think about recommendation for uh, policymakers, it's making sure that there's investment in AI research and development and make sure, making sure that there's some sort of fostering for a digital ecosystem for AI, as I mentioned, that inclusion aspect being important for um, broad distribution of these capabilities. Okay, well, Angus and Laz, thanks so much for your time today. We've We've, uh, we're absorbing a lot of information, uh, and uh, you can help us now by telling us where online Sustainable Finance Podcast followers can learn more about Schroeder's perspective on the investment impact of deglobalization and demographic change, and how can they get in touch with you related to the issues that we've discussed in today's program? We do publish quite a bit um, of our own research on, on our website, so www.schroeders.com, and you can see under the Insights and Perspective pages, there are all things from short blog pieces to longer form research pieces that, that we tend to publish on a quarterly basis. Um, so that's a great place to start. And, and then I think there are a few contact us forms that could be filled out from there. Terrific. Okay, well, thanks very much again to Angus Bauer and Lazaro Tiant for joining me in episode three of this Schroeder's and Sustainable Finance podcast series. And to our followers, join us again next week for another episode. I'm Paul Ellis, and this is the Sustainable Finance Podcast.